0: How's it going? Um, there's like no place to set this guy stay. Uh, this morning, this morning has been a crazy, crazy morning. So many things went wrong uh, in leading up to this service. Uh, at one point our fire alarm went off. I don't know if it was the burning bush or what it was. But everything went wrong. Um, But it's when things go wrong that it usually means God's on the move. And so I'm excited for what he's going to go and do in us and through us this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus. Uh, Chapter 3, I lied to you. Chapter 2 is where we'll start. Um, It says this, and this is um, the very end of chapter 2. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This sets the stage. This is why Moses is called. This is why we have the Exodus, because God heard and saw the prayers and the heart cry of an oppressed people. And we left off last week with Moses fleeing Egypt because he killed an Egyptian and goes into the desert of Midian where he's there for 40 years. He gets a new job as a shepherd, gets a family, his wife Zipporah, his first son Gershom. And he lives there the simple life for 40 years. This is where we pick it up in chapter 3 of Exodus. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses encounters the divine and notice he wasn't doing anything special at that time. He wasn't on a retreat. He wasn't in a prayer meeting. He wasn't on a missions trip. He was just doing his job and God shows up. God loves to work and delights to work amidst the unspectacular. Fire is a frequent sign of God's presence in Exodus and there's lots of scholars who have debated on why that is the case. One ancient philosopher named Philo offers an allegorical explanation. He says this, that the fire's inability to consume the bush symbolizes the Egyptians' inability to destroy Israel. We saw in week one of this series three different attempts for Pharaoh to try and get rid of the Hebrew problem, yet they refuse to be consumed. And I think that this symbolism may be taking place, but I think a more simple explanation is true as well. Fire consumes, yet the bush is not consumed. God suspends the natural laws of planet earth and shows that he has the power to do so. This would foreshadow what God would do throughout the book of Exodus. Bushes do not remain unscorched when they're on fire, but neither do rivers turn to blood. Uh, Frogs, flies, locusts don't normally invade a nation. Gnats are not formed from the dust. Hail and darkness don't fall at command. And the firstborn of a nation does not die in one night. And seas do not turn into walls where you can cross on dry ground, all of which we'll see and explore in the weeks to come. Moses would have been wise to learn this lesson from the burning bush. So why does he got to remove his sandals? Brings us back to our parents yelling at us when we come inside the house, take off your shoes, you're tracking dirt everywhere, right? Except here Moses is in a desert. So there's dirt all over the place, Removing your shoes was and still is a sign in many cultures in the Near East of honoring, reverence. Nearly all other world religions have the practice of taking off your shoes before you worship, before you enter into a sanctuary of some sort. Christianity does not. Why? Why? Because everywhere we go is sacred. This is the first place that is called holy in the Bible. The first place. It's not a temple. It's not a tabernacle. It's a patch of dirt in the desert. That's the first place God calls holy. Taking off shoes was a way of honoring the host. It still is. But as Christ followers, we don't remove our shoes, but we should be walking through the world with barefoot hearts. We don't remove our shoes in our Christian practice. But we should walk the world with barefoot hearts. How can you do this? How can you have a barefoot heart? Well, while walking from the parking lot to your job, with each step, could your heart proclaim that that asphalt is holy asphalt? Uh, That that carpet in your house is holy carpet? That that playground at your child's school is a holy playground? The whole earth belongs to the Lord and his presence isn't confined to a temple, to a church, to a particular holy place. All the earth is sacred. And as followers of Jesus, we walk the world with barefoot hearts. And often when we read this scripture, we think of Moses and God here. God's like saying, I'm so holy that you need to uh, revere me and take off your shoes. Almost as if like there's this barrier uh, to God's holiness. And I think that's true, but I think you can also take it another way. The sandals of Moses were the barrier between he and God. By God saying, take off your sandals, he's saying, I don't want there to be a barrier between you and me and in our intimacy. I want your feet to touch the holiness that is below you. Allow your feet to be in direct contact with, with this holy God in this holy place. And the narrator at the outset tells us the significance of this burning bush. says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. That's chapter three, verse two. Moses is not yet aware of this, but he's about to come face to face with God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now the precise identity of this angel of the Lord has been a matter of debate among the rabbis and Christian scholars for thousands of years. The Hebrew can also be translated messenger of the Lord, which is exactly what this role of this burning bush plays, right? A messenger of God. But yet we see throughout the Old Testament that the, the angel of the Lord is closely identified with the Lord himself. And actually in verse 4, it says, the Lord saw Moses. So they, the angel of the Lord and Lord actually become synonymous just in a couple of verses in chapter 3. Obviously, there's a close identity between these two. So is this the angel of the Lord or is this the Lord? Yes. Yes. Many see the angel of the Lord's appearances throughout the Old Testament as a pre-incarnate Christ. There's so much more that could be said about that. Uh, Maybe that's another sermon for another time. But for time's sake, we'll continue. Verse seven. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That sounds sticky, a land <laughs> flowing with milk and honey. It was most likely referring to goat's milk, and the honey was more, most likely a date syrup. But a land flowing with goat's milk and date syrup doesn't quite have the same appeal doesn't sound quite as awesome. Verse nine. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God says, go now, I'm sending you, go. Moses is 80 years old. He's a simple shepherd at this time. He's, 40, he's four decades removed from the days when he lived in Pharaoh's household and he's been a wandering shepherd All this time. Now we're gonna read how Moses responds, the Bible actually tells us, but let's pause for a second and ask how would you respond? You've got your rhythms and routines. This is a call to uproot your whole life and maybe even forsake your life, lose your life. How would you respond? Now, many of us would say, well, if I saw a burning bush, Done deal. Like, if I saw God supernaturally speaking to me through some shrubbery, I'm in, no questions asked, no doubts. But the whole Bible attests that that's not true actually throughout the whole book of Exodus, the same people who saw God work miraculously through Moses and letting my people go and parting the Red Sea and then crushing down Pharaoh's army after them, the same people who saw that are the same ones who were complaining about Moses and God saying, I want to go back into Egypt. We had it better there. The food was better in slavery. And the gospels tell us the same thing. The same people who saw Jesus Raise Lazarus from the dead. Feed the 5,000. Heal the lepers. Exercise demons. The same people are the ones who are silent at his crucifixion. The whole Bible tells us that the supernatural, the miracles, the miraculous, doesn't actually produce true followers of God. And we think I'd be different, right? I'd, if I saw one of those and God spoke to me through it, I, I'd say yes no matter what it is. The real truth is, we'd probably have excuses and doubts and questions just as Moses does. And in a fashion more like a pouting child than the the great Israelite leader, Moses questions God's wisdom, not once, not twice, but no shorter than five times. Five excuses he lays out before God. We don't have time to dive into all five. We'll deal with the first three this morning, deal with the last two next week. But here are the excuses Moses lays out before God, one at a time. Number one, I'm nobody special. Two, I'm no theologian. Three, what if they don't believe? Four, I don't talk good. Five, I don't want to. Now let's look at these excuses and we can find, see if we can find ourselves within these excuses as well. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, God appears to him, burning bush, take off your shoes, it's holy ground, God appears to him, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? I'm nobody special. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses then says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and, they say, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What should I tell them? He says, listen, God, I'm not a theologian. They're going to ask me questions about you. I don't have the answers to. What am I supposed to say? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. See, we see with the first two excuses of Moses, uh, and it's like he I don't want to do it. He's on the spot, he's scrambling. He says, "Uh they're going to ask me your name. They're going to ask me your name, so I don't even know what to say." And God actually answers him. And throughout the book of Exodus, guess what Israel never asks Moses? What's God's name? He's like, "They're they're going to ask you, they're going to ask me what your name is, and I need to know the answer." And it never happens. That Moses has this fear and it never becomes a reality. Has this ever happened to you? You've got this fear and and it paralyzes you. It grips you. You worry about it. You stress about it. You can't sleep at night because you're thinking of it. And it never happens. You're wasting your life worrying and fearing something that actually may not ever show up. Do you spend way too much time consumed with fear and worry over things that may not even happen? God says, I am. That's how God answers Moses, by saying, I am who I am. These three Hebrew words, Ayah, Asher, Ayah, the Lord, Yahweh. The theological term for these four letters is tetragrammaton. Fun word to say. Impress some people with it. It means he is. In Greek, it's ego, I me, I am, I am. There are all sorts of ways and theories about what this means. Some scholars think that it's, it's referring to uh, that uh, God is the definition of existence. Some think that the Hebrew sounding yod, hey, vah, hey, these four letters is actually the sound of breathing. And so that as you breathe, you're proclaiming the name of God. Some think the phrase itself is I, I will be who I will be. Jesus identifies himself as the great I am in John 4. We don't have time to go there, but I encourage you in your own time this week, check it out. It's, it's fantastic. Verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Notice that multiple times here in this interaction with Yahweh, uh, God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I remember when I, when I used to read this, I would just kind of skip past it. Yeah, 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 we get it. You've said it numerous times. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Got it, got it. So I just say the God, that's fine. But God's introductory point of identity is not his power, but his people. He could have said, I am the God who created the heavens and the earth, and I strike lightning and thunder before you should fear and revere me because I can, created the entire universe. He could go the power route, but he goes the people route. He says, Nope, I'm the God in relationship with your people, and I want to be in a relationship with you. He binds his identity to his kids. In essence, he's saying, You want to know what I'm like? Look at my kids. Look at my kids. He's not ashamed of them. God has the bumper sticker of my kid as an honor student in Fresno, California. I think we have a picture of God's bumper, and apparently he drives a Mitsubishi as well. Um, he's not ashamed. He's proud of his kid. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Laura, Carol, Sapari, Melissa, Brennan, Alex. He is our God, and he's not ashamed of us. He wants to be identified with us. Verse 16, go assemble, this is God speaking, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. God asks him before he goes to Pharaoh to go to the elders of Israel. And yet as we read on, Moses never does this. There is nothing in the book of Exodus that, that shows that Moses actually followed God's instructions to a T. He, he doesn't do it. He, he missed it. He didn't follow God completely. And that's all of us, right? We don't follow God completely, and yet God still uses us. God still uses Moses and blesses Moses. God's like, you didn't take the—you didn't go to the elders. Moses, 1st ah, ah, we'll just work with what we got— that's beautiful. That even when we don't follow him completely, he blesses us and meets us where we are. God shows grace. If the first sign was meant to convince Moses, the second sign was meant to convince the Israelites. Whereas the first objection of Moses is, I don't think I can do this. The second objection is, no one else thinks I can do this either. Chapter four Moses answered, another excuse. What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Yes. Put it on my tap. A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out, took hold of the snake, and turned it back into a staff in his hand. This, the Lord said, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. The Hebrew word for snake here is the word for cobra, okay? Cobra. The staff turns into a snake. Well, why a snake? Because the snake uh, represents the sign of Egyptian royalty, right? Think of King Tut's mask, right? The cobra-like headdress. Here's a photo of it. It's a cobra-like headdress. It's the symbol of Egypt's power. God says specifically to pick it up by the tail. Here's another photo of the ancient Egyptian headdress, right? The snake is on top. It's the symbol of power and authority in Egypt. Now, I don't know a lot about poisonous snakes, but I do know one thing. You don't pick them up by the tail. They can bite you, okay? Whenever you see snake handlers, what do they pick them up by? The head. They're just holding this deadly snake by his head. But yet God specifically says, pick it up by its tail. I want you to absolutely trust me. I want you to put yourself and make yourself vulnerable before me. And by doing that, God is saying, Don't worry, Moses. We've got Egypt by the tail. We've got Egypt by the tail. This is amazing. God is more powerful than Pharaoh. And in this amazing encounter with God at the burning bush, God asked Moses, What's in your hand? And Moses says, It's a staff. I'm 80. Okay? The desert has lots of rocks and stuff. It helps me walk. It's common. It's normal. Uh, it's a staff. Everybody's got one of these. Any shepherd has one of these. It's not a big deal. Like if a lizard or a snake tries to get one of my sheep, I can kind of do this a little bit, and it knocks them away. It's not a big deal. It's ordinary. God says, now throw it on the ground. Oh. <laughs> Moses' response as well. The Bible says that Moses ran away. He ran away when he saw the snake. But then he was probably like, got my shoes. And then he had to go back and get his shoes. Now as we read on, this staff in verse 2 is called a shepherd's staff. By verse 20, it's called the staff of God. Oh. What, what starts as something natural when placed in the hands of god becomes supernatural what what is nothing to us becomes something to god In Moses' hand, it was just a staff, but in God's hand, it's something so much more. This staff was used to confront the magicians in Pharaoh's court, to turn the waters of Egypt into blood, to bring frogs upon the land, to bring thunder and hail through the land, to cause the waters of the Red Sea to stand like a wall, to cause waters of the Red Sea to become back on Pharaoh's armies, to bring forth water from a rock at Horeb, and to bring victory to his army. To think that Moses called it just a staff. The question is, what is in your hand that God could use? All Jochebed, Moses' mother had, was some straw, but she used it to weave a basket, place her son in, preserve his life, free a nation. What do you have in your hand? The little boy Jesus used to feed the 5,000, what do you have? I, I've just got these five loaves and two fish. God uses it to feed 20,000 people. What do you have in your hand? The widow, all she had in her hand was two small coins, yet Jesus says it's worth way more than all the riches in this land. What do you have in your hand? For those of you who, who might have some excuses before God, God can use whatever you have no matter how small it is for he is truly a God of the impossible. You don't need to be educated. You don't need to be rich. You don't need to be white. You don't need to be powerful. You don't need to be good looking, charismatic, eloquent, or even qualified. God is not interested in these things, but what he is interested in is what's in your hand. He wants to make the natural supernatural in our lives, but you've got to release it. If you've got something in your hand, but you're holding it tightly, and God says, throw it on the ground, and you go, I'm good. I like it. It helps me. We all have something to give. Would this staff have been able to be used in these instances if it remained in his hand? No. For it to be used, for it to be transformed, it had to be released. It had to be placed before the holy God on the holy ground. Once Moses released it, It was no longer Moses' shepherd staff. It was the staff of God. You gotta be able to let it go. If we make available what's in our hand, it becomes God's. So, what are are, are God's responses to to Moses' three questions? I'm nobody special. God said, Who said you need to be? I'll be with you. He says, I'm no theologian. God says, you know me, and that's enough. What if they don't believe? God says, don't worry, leave that up to me. I want to invite Noe and the worship band to come up. And we'll close with a song, but as I was thinking and and reflecting on this story, this this burning bush has found its way into our culture, right? Uh, People often refer to a burning bush experience. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a chance or it's a, it refers to that experience of God or of a, a clarity of our calling. And I just want to share mine. I, I wasn't born or raised as, in, a, in a Christian uh, atmosphere. Uh, I didn't really know God growing up and making bad decisions as a teenager I was instilled godly, beautiful, wonderful, Jesus-like principles. But Jesus didn't touch me. Jesus didn't change me. Jesus didn't affect the way I think. Uh, then I, then I, I raised my hand to respond to this Jesus. And God began to change my life. And I, I, I wanted to, first I wanted to play football for the Chiefs. That was kind of my calling, I thought. The, at one point, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Um, then I wanted to go into politics. Like, I was a, a poli-sci major in my freshman year of college. Then I go on this Mexico missions trip. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a leader. I'm, I'm volunteering at the student ministry. And we're on this dirt soccer field in Mexicali, Mexico. It's 130 degrees outside. And we've got these teenagers running around. We're playing soccer with these kids. They're pointing at me, calling me gringo. And I'm going... And and I'm standing on this dirt soccer field. I'm right at midfield. There's dirt everywhere. It's super hot. And the the kids would always go up to us and go, papuchi, gringo, papuchi, papuchi. And we're like, huh? It meant piggyback ride. So they'd want to be on our shoulders. And they would just run around. It it was just an amazing, amazing time. And so... I'm in the middle of this dirt soccer field and this junior high kid from California gave up his spring break to go and serve God in this village south of Ensenada and he's got this Mexican kid on his shoulders and he runs past me at midfield and it was as if time stood still. Uh, he, he's got like, this kid looks at me and it was slow it was slow-mo, it's clear as day. He looks at me and he goes, this is awesome. Dirt in his teeth and a Mexican kid on his shoulders. And it was like the camera of my life went up into the sky as a drone and spun around. And I felt the still small voice of God saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to help people understand me, what it means to love God and love others. That was it. That was it. It wasn't as clear as this, but it, it couldn't have been clearer to my soul. And I changed my major from politics to Christian ministry and biblical studies. God has a specific calling for all of us. And guess what? We're all called to ministry. What, you're going to clock in tomorrow morning, you're, it's ministry. You're on the front lines bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. At your workplace, you're going to get in your car. It's time for ministry. You're going to get home. You're going to cross that threshold. It's ministry time. We're all called to service of God because everywhere is holy. Everywhere is sacred. We don't just behave here. We don't just love God here. We don't just say nice things to each other and let cars go past us as they're leaving the parking lot here. No, we do that everywhere. Every place is holy. Can we bring that with our lives? With the love we found in Jesus. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you help us do this. I thank you, God, that the ground that we're on now is holy ground. But the ground in the parking lot is holy. The ground... Beneath our feet in our office chair, tomorrow is holy. And God, may we live that way. Let us not s- draw a hard line between the sacred and the secular. God, help us to see the sacred within the secular. God, I pray that we would have a transforming presence no matter where we are. We thank you for your call in our lives, God. And I pray that you would clarify that more and more. To each person here, clarify. God, What is your calling to them in this moment, in this season? God, it may not be a career choice. It may not be uh, something that appears to be grandiose or a, a certain occupation. But God, you're calling us to specific things right here, right now and you use whatever to speak to us, whether it's a burning bush, whether it's a car's horn, whether it's a phone call or a text, or a pastor sharing a message from the word of God on a Sunday morning at 5445 Palm Avenue, Fresno, California. God, we pray that you would speak to us. Even through this song, God, speak to us. Draw us close to you. Thank you that you are the great I am. When we're not, When we're empty, when we're alone, when we're tired, when we're broken, when we're suffering, I am is enough. God is enough. So God, show yourself to be true in the midst of our own oppression and hurting the way you did for Israel 2,500 years ago, 3,500 years ago. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close this song together? aware of you. The place at which we stand is holy ground. Help us to be aware of your presence this morning. Sphere is changing now for the spirit of the Lord.